What truth to thank God for that we're no longer slaves to fear, but in Christ we've been adopted and we belong. We belong. Amen. Well, church family, good morning, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, I want to extend to you uh, just a warm welcome and glad, glad to spend this Thanksgiving weekend together. I hope you had a meaningful uh, Thanksgiving weekend with uh, your family, with loved ones, with friends. Um, we had just had a delightful time in the Bolting House household Thursday evening, our older son and daughter-in-law, and our two beautiful grandchildren. Uh, we're over Audrey, three and a half years old, and Elias, nine months old, and he's just got a perpetual smile on his face. And we had a great, great uh, evening together and uh, um, had pie and then played on the floor with Thomas the tank engine trains all over everywhere. And um, it, was just, it was just a delightful time, and uh, I'm just grateful uh, so I, can we just pray the Lord's Prayer together here? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Jeffrey Zacks is a professor of psychology and radiology in Washington University in St. Louis. And um, he laments a global trend of seeking shortcuts. Seeking shortcuts. He writes, is it just me or is everybody out there looking for a quick fix? He says there's something compelling about the idea of a secret switch that we can flip and suddenly turn smarter, faster, fitter, and better. And Dr. Zacks uh, talks about a company that created an online brain training game system. And in seven years, they went from zero to 50 million users. Uh, this company promised rapid improvements in general intelligence and even to the point of staving off Alzheimer's. Uh, just play our brain training video games for a few weeks and you can stave off Alzheimer's. Uh, the FCC got them for that to the tune of $2 million. Uh, but uh, these quick fixes, and he, uh, Dr. Zacks talks about uh, memory, health, nutritional supplements, uh, and smart drugs to enhance cognitive performance to the tune of $1.5 billion a year in sales. Um, products that he says offer the illusion of teaching foreign languages and curing our addictions while we sleep. Makers of headgear that attaches electrodes uh, to our scalps to promise to rev up our brains to improve gaming performance and other cognitive activities. Quick fixes. Don't you wish it were that easy? Man, I do. You know, take a pill play a video game, attach some electrodes, and I mean, wouldn't it be great if I could just take a sermon pill Thursday night 
And then Friday morning, I could just, you know, uh, read all I needed to read. And then uh, Friday afternoon, I could write the just first draft, boom, ready to go. And then take another pill Friday night. And then Saturday, I'm good to go. And I can just perform. So I obviously have not taken one of those pills. You know, how I wish it was that quick. You know, just smarter, fitter, faster. Well, what if it did work? Let's just, just, what if it did work? You know, what if you could take an IQ pill? You know, or a performance, but what if? And you were faster, fitter, stronger, smarter. To what end? To what end? Well, then I could get more done. Why? Well, to reach my goals. Well, and then what? Well, I'd, I'd be successful. Well, yeah, and then what? Well, I want to be a good, what's the word, church? I want to be a good steward. Okay, of what? And why? Well, I just want to get faster and get more done. And so what? So the people would see. Ah, so the people would see. Ah, okay. All right. You see what I'm saying? If we're not careful... You know, we can become very efficient at doing the wrong thing well. And the fact of the matter is, God is not into quick fixes. He's into character formation. He's not into hurriedness. Take a deep breath. Exhale. He's not into hurriedness. He's into holiness. And you want to know what his end game is? Yeah. Well, it's, it's Exodus 19, verse 6. This is his end game for us. Exodus 19, 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me, here it is, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's God's end game for us. Us. Kingdom of priests. That we might know God, serve God, love God, speak for God, represent God, introduce others to God. Holy nation, kingdom of priests. That's his end game for his glory and the good of the whole earth. And out of all of the people, why he's chosen us. And that doesn't say anything about us. It says everything about him. How good is that? Well, what's his process of creating a kingdom of priests? If that's true, if we're priests, what, what's his seminary curriculum look like? Well, that's what I want you to look at today as we study Exodus chapters 13 and 14. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Exodus 13 and 14. That's pages 55 and 56. And this week and next, we're going to be talking about the miracle of the Red Sea and what God is doing to form a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, 
there are certain passages in Scripture that if we can just master the storyline, it will really help us understand um, really the rest of the Bible. Sometimes we find ourselves frustrated because we think there's just so much information in the Bible, data, disconnected data, and there are a lot of verses, and yet, here it is. There's one master narrative that's repeated over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture. And if we can just get the master narrative, then uh, the Scripture will really come alive in ways that maybe we hadn't been able to see before. And the master narrative is what we're looking at here in Exodus 13 and 14, where God rescues helpless slaves and transforms them into a kingdom of priests. That's the master narrative, this amazing section on the Red Sea. So I want to look at Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 22, and then I want to read Exodus 14, verses 10 through 18. Follow along with me. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt in orderly formation. Now, I'll tell you why I said that, knowing that it's different in the English Standard Version. I'll tell you that in just a moment. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt in orderly formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh 
his chariots, and his horsemen. This is God's word. So these verses speak of the defining miracle that secured Israel as a nation, the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, before the miracle, they were a community of slaves. After the miracle, they were a kingdom of priests, a rescued people of God. God brought them from slavery to freedom, from fragmentation to solidarity, and from uh, people of promise, the Hebrews, to a nation of fulfillment. Helpless slaves, kingdom of priests. And that's the theme of Exodus. This theme that gets recounted over and over again throughout Scripture, God rescuing the helpless and transforming them by His grace into a kingdom of holy people. And I can't think of a better weekend for us to read these verses because they're really about giving gratitude to God for giving us a vocation, a purpose in life, a purpose that transcends this life and brings us into the next. And that's why I want us to consider the process that God uses in forming us to be his priests. And that process from these verses features two specifics. God protects, God places. God protects us for us. That is, he protects us so that we'll grow. And then he places us where we absolutely have to trust. We are exhausted of our own resources. And if he doesn't come through, we're going to be buried like the Egyptians. He protects us. And he places us. That's God's seminary curriculum. And let's look at these two features, these two activities of God as we consider these verses. First, God protects us. He protects us for us so that we will grow in him. So in Exodus chapter 13, I mean, finally God has freed Israel. I mean, after centuries of enslavement and ten plagues, Pharaoh released Israel. But did you notice, did you hear in these verses that, you know, when Pharaoh released Israel, God did not lead Israel to the land of promise by the most direct route. Scripture says he did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, let's take a look at this map here. Um, up to the upper left-hand corner is around where Israel was going to be leaving Egypt proper. And the way of the Philistines or the way of the land of the Philistines is at the very top of the screen. And what I want you to know is that that was a highway. It was a very well-known highway. In fact, it even extended on to the time of the Roman Empire. It was called the Via Maris by the time the Romans took over. But this was, a, this was as known to the people in that region as I-57 is known to us. It was a very well-traveled commercial highway from Egypt to Canaan, which had God's people taken would have been about two weeks' travel. It was a direct route 
uh, to the future God had promised. And yet, God did not send his people that way. They ended up in the, they took the scenic route. They took the long route. And why is that? Well, because the way of the Philistines was a militarized zone consisting of Egyptians and Philistines and beyond the Philistines, even the Canaanites. And the Hebrews had been workers and slaves and brickmakers. They were not a continental army. And God knew that if his people ran into resistance, they'd fold. They'd want to go back to Egypt. We're going to see that in just a moment. So he took them the long route. And that's where we get to this verse 18, where it says that, that God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And then it says, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt. The English Standard Version uh, actually puzzles me when it says equipped for battle. In the Hebrew, it, it, it actually Two scholars point out that it actually means, and I don't know why they translated it this way. They didn't ask me. But it says, in orderly formation. That's really what it is. In other words, the point is that Moses did not let uh, Israel wander about like a mob of scattered uh, people. They proceeded in an organized way. But can you imagine, having said what I just said, about the quickest way from point A to point B, and then... Not going that way. Can you imagine Moses having to put up with all the backseat drivers? Huh? Why are we going this way? The way by the sea is shorter. We're going to get there fastest, Moses. Come on, let's go. Well, God's not interested in fast. He's not. God is interested in a tempered, steely faith. Listen, when God wants to do something fast, he makes mushrooms. Fast, two weeks, man. Put them on my salad, soup, whatever, stir fry. Two weeks. When God wants to make redwoods, that's a different story, isn't it? It's a different time zone. Do you want to be a mushroom? You want to be a redwood? When is it? I read about it. I read about a redwood that still alive, the seedling germinated when the apostle Paul was in prison. Mushroom, not so much. Redwood. <laughs> One of my teachers in school preached on Exodus chapter 13. This was his big, this section right here. This was his big idea. Never forgotten it. Here it is. For God, the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag. His way is not our way. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So if God leads you through a scenic route in your life, it's only because he's for you. Only because he's for you. And he sees what's coming in a way that we can't. So there's a program called This American Life. And uh, in one episode, it featured the lives of several people currently living what they called Plan B. And the host of the program, Ira Glass, asked a room of 100 people, 
to think back at the beginning of adulthood when they were first formulating a plan for their lives, a plan, you know, which the host called Plan A, the fate you were sure fate had in store. And then Ira Glass asked those 100 people, um, he asked those who were still following Plan A to raise their hand. Only one person did out of 100, a 23-year-old. You see, when life turns out to be a series of unplanned detours, it's really easy to despair over the thought of missing God's best. And it's easy to think that, okay, now God has to step back in into the picture, and he's inconvenienced and annoyed and disappointed, and now he's got to strum up some secondary plan for your life. And, and worse than that are those who believe that they're living God's plan A, and then arrogantly insist that it was their own virtue that accomplishes it. But what if the God we serve is well aware that there are turns in life that we cannot undo, and choices that we cannot erase, and detours that we, we never saw coming, and in some of these wrong turns, God no doubt weeps with us. But church family, please hear me. Ultimately, our wrong turn never disrupts God. And plan B may be what you say to punish yourself, but the God of Christianity is not any farther away than what you're calling plan A than plan B or C or D. In fact, God only has one plan. Kingdom of priests. Holy nation. That's the plan. I know the plans I have for you, God says. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And that is what God is doing. Redirecting our steps to a destination that does not change. And despite our broken roads, God is forever showing us that in the end, his best comes to us, not because of our own careful steps, but because he is faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. As Paul said in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. And grace upon grace... God gives us a sign of his faithfulness to finish his work. Did you see the sign of God's faithfulness in this text? It's a coffin. <laughs> Look at verse 19. But Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Verse 19 tells of Joseph's bones being brought up out of Egypt, just as he had told his heirs in Genesis 50, 25. God will visit you, 
And when he does, take my remains and bury them in the land of promise. Isn't that not an interesting detail? And so as they're traveling, a little Hebrew girl says to her parents, Mom and Dad, what's in that box? Oh, that. Well, that's a coffin. A coffin? Well, who's in it? Oh, sweetheart, the bones of Joseph. You see, honey, 430 years ago, Joseph was a prime minister of Egypt. And he is why we came to Egypt. Because without him, we would not have survived as a people. And he had been a slave. And he'd been in a dungeon. But God promoted him to the head of state, second only to Pharaoh. And... He saved not only our people, but the entire nation of Egypt. And we flourished because of God's work through him. God is so faithful to us. And before Joseph died, he asked that his bones be removed from Egypt and buried in the land of promise. And so we're taking them with us. And when we get there, we're going to bury him in the land of promise. That those bones are with them means that God will bring his people where they need to be. So where you are may not be where God ultimately wants you to be, but it's where he wants you right now. And in time, he'll get you ready. And in the meantime... He encourages you, and he protects you. And that leads us to verses 21 and 22. Verses that speak of the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, this supernatural manifestation of the Lord. And some of us wish God would offer us that kind of help. Oh, if only a pillar of fire would appear before this job opportunity or you know, before this person that we're supposed to marry or the school that we're supposed to attend. Oh, but listen, in Christ, we have someone better. We have the fire of the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity resting on us, us, giving us wisdom, giving us the fruit, his fruit, his produce, love, joy, peace, patience, giving us a community to ask the best question ever. What is the wise thing to do in light of my past, in light of my present, in light of my future? What is the wise thing to do? And he, he rests not just on us individually, but on us as a community, for it's a kingdom of priests. And so we gather here, really hear me, not as individuals taking in a Bible lecture, but as a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, in community, bonded by the Holy Spirit, sharing wisdom with each other, encouraging, spurring one another on, building each other up. That is a part of God's curriculum to build a kingdom of priests. God protects us for us 
to grow us. He protects us, and then he places us. He places us where we absolutely have to trust him. And that takes us to chapter 14. In our verses, Israel follows the pillar of cloud and fire as carefully as possible, thrilled with their new freedom, full of excitement about the future. And yet as they followed him, God deliberately led them into a cul-de-sac of hostile hills to the edge of a sea too deep to be forded and too wide to be crossed. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So specific instructions, step by step, to lead Israel down a route of apparent ruin. Turn and camp and camp there and then go there to this entrapping area. Yes, right there in that impossible place. One scholar says that the Lord sets a puzzling route that no man would have thought of to confuse Pharaoh by an appearance of confusion and to win further and final glory for himself at Pharaoh's expense. Yes, God put his people in an impossible place. And he occasionally does the same thing with us, testing our faith, leading us into hardship, teaching us wisdom, showing us his ways. Listen, when you're in a difficult place, you realize that the Lord either put you there or he allowed you to be there, perhaps reasons known only to himself. And it's as if God said to Israel, I need them to be in a spot where they have they're, they're exhausted of all their food that they brought with them. They have no crops that they're harvesting and no herds that they're taking care of. And all of a sudden, they begin to realize that unless this God who brought them out does not remain, we're going to die. And then I'm going to show them that I do remain, that I am with them. And it's going to be something they have never seen before. And Pharaoh, oh, he smelled blood. He heard that they'd wandered into a trap. And the Lord hardened his heart, and he deployed his chariots and armies in hot pursuit. Can you imagine the fear that gripped God's people, trapped between sea and army, trapped between two deaths? There was absolutely no way out. And one uh, paraphrase, the message puts it this way. The Israelites, they were totally afraid, and they cried out in terror to God. I mean, how could they not? How can you not be in terror when your child is in the military, secretly sent to deadly situations around the globe? How can you not be in terror when your outflow exceeds your income and the creditors are calling? How can you not be in terror when your loved one is diagnosed with cancer? How can you not be in terror when your job is terminated and your child is troubled and Christmas is coming? How can you not be in terror when the Red Sea faces you and the desert surrounds you and the armies of Egypt are blitzing you with drawn swords? And the Israelites, they told Moses, 
Weren't the cemeteries large enough in Egypt so that you had to take us out here in the wilderness to die? What have you done to us taking us out of Egypt? Back in Egypt, didn't we tell you this would happen? Didn't we tell you, leave us alone here in Egypt? Now, did they really say that? Of course not. They panicked. We never wanted to go in the first place. They never said that. Yet Moses, this, this Midian shepherd for 40 years, who when God first called him said he, he was slow of speech, not in this verse, he did not flinch. Verse 13, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Be still. What does that remind you of? Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You be still. Don't focus on what you need to do. Pay attention to Christ. And that's why our faith is different than every other religion on the face of this earth. Because every other religion on the face of this earth is like building a bridge across water. There's water, and you put a pylon down, and then you put another pylon down, and then you build a bridge out to that pylon, and so on. You're trying to get over to the other side on your effort, but you never really feel like you've quite arrived, but you're trying. But that's not this. That's not Christianity. One minute you're a slave, and the next minute you're a priest. One minute you're enslaved, and the next minute you're liberated. One moment you're an orphan, and the next you're adopted. I mean, you either are or you aren't. There's no process. You go from 0% forgiven to 100% forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you've been transferred into the kingdom of his son. Zero, 100%. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. And once we trust Christ, it's fear not, stand firm, be still. And that's a difficult discipline because we want to react, don't we? We want to do something. We want to look busy. We want to cover the bases. And to stand in the middle of a trial shows grace. But stand we must and kneel we must. Kneel we must. And you might say, yeah, pastor, but what about the armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6? Well, what about the armor of God? Yes, put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel and the belt of truth and, and the sword of the spirit. Yes, and, and keep reading in that chapter in Ephesians 6 because after the soldier of Christ has donned the armor of Christ he advances by dropping on his knees in prayer, calling upon the God who fights for us. When we're caught between the desert and the sea, 
and fix between the two deaths. Be still and behold his salvation. There is no way out, but there is a way through. For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. And church family, grace upon grace, just as they received a sign, we receive a sign too. It's better than a coffin. It's an empty tomb. And there are no bones in that tomb. For he is risen, just as he said he would. And that is the guarantee that what he began, he will in fact finish. He who protects us because he's for us. And he who places us where we can see him fighting for his glory and our good. Is that not something to be thankful for? You know, I, uh, it was so nice out yesterday. I wish I would have ridden my bicycle. I did. We got the yard raked and the leaves all scooped up. and I was even feeling ambitious, so I just kind of went over the front yard again one more time with my lawnmower. I was feeling pretty good. But I just didn't have enough sunlight to get out on my bicycle. Made me think of this poem. At first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was sort of out there like a movie star. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I didn't really know him. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life was rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike. And I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested that we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring and buttoned down. Predictable but it was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal! And I was worried, and I was anxious, and I said, where are you taking me? And he laughed and didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust. And I forgot my boring button-down life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. And he took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing and acceptance and joy. And they gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine, and we were off again. And then he'd say, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did to the people we met. And I found that in giving, I received and still. 
our burden was light. I didn't trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. He knows how to jump to clear high rocks. He knows how to fly to short and scary passages. And I'm learning to be still and paddle in the strangest places. I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my King, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, he just smiles and he says, pedal. <laughs>